Welcome to States of Democracy, a podcast from WNET and PBS 13's Preserving Democracy Initiative. I'm Molly Enking. Today, we're talking Texas. If the elections this fall or next year are anything less than perfect, we could wind up seeing a greater degree of state intervention in Harris County than we've ever seen before. Later in the episode, we'll go in-depth on all the latest election and voting news in the Lone Star State with Houston Public Media reporter Andrew Schneider, including Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's recent impeachment trial, updates on the elimination of the Harris County Election Administration Office, and more. But first, we're discussing the latest in voting rights news across the nation. Tens of thousands of mail ballots were tossed in the 2022 primary and general election. Um, Untold registrations were canceled. Megan Bellamy is the vice president of policy at Voting Rights Lab, a nonpartisan organization that tracks voting law and legislation. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Since this is the first time we're having you on the show, would you mind telling us a little bit about Voting Rights Lab and the work you guys do? Sure. So the Voting Rights Lab is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization really focused on accelerating the movement for free and fair elections through expert analysis, research, and innovations. Um, Speaking specifically of the policy team, we track election-related legislation and current law in all 50 states and D.C., and our state voting rights tracker. Uh, the tracker is the premier database of state election legislation dealing with um, anything voting and elections. Uh, and we really make sure that it's usable by lawmakers, journalists, and partner organizations. Yeah, it's a great tool for journalists. Yeah, we, we really pride ourselves on it. Um, we do a lot of deep analysis and reviews of every single piece of elections legislation that comes down the pike. Uh, and then we categorize it so that folks can keep up And in your research and analysis at Voting Rights Lab, you label bills as restrictive or improving access or sometimes mixed or unclear impact. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Right. So so we try to just take a, again, a really unbiased, nonpartisan approach to the potential impact of every single piece of legislation. And we tend to focus on it from a voter experience view. So anything that is generally going to make elections easier, make voting easier, the administration of elections easier, we will tag as improving access. Um, Things that don't, we will tag as otherwise, and anything that we're not sure of the potential outcome yet, that gets that mixed or unclear tag. And in the markup, your weekly newsletter, uh, you always start with good news and bad news. Um, Shall we start with the bad news today to get it out of the way? What do you think? Sure, let's start there. So in North Carolina, Senate Bill 749 would change who appoints electors to state or county uh, boards. It is. And just as you mentioned, one of the most significant pieces of legislation that we've seen under consideration there is Senate Bill 749. So this bill could give uh, North Carolina state lawmakers personal control over elections in the state. In broad strokes, the bill would change the makeup of the state board of elections, uh, change the makeup of the county board of elections, provide greater authority to the legislature, change the threshold for the state board of elections to order the redo of an election, which is a big deal, and potentially lead to the mass closure of one-stop early voting sites. 
Now, we know that North Carolinians oppose this power grab. Nearly 62% of North Carolina voters have rejected a similar plan at the ballot in the 2018 elections. And we also know that extremist and bad faith actors have been pushing the North Carolina legislature's election policy proposals. It's been reported in local media that Lita Mitchell, who is an attorney recommended for indictment by an independent grand jury in Georgia for working to overturn the 2020 election results, has been heavily influencing elections policy here in North Carolina this year. Election administration policies and processes should be determined by what works best for voters and local election officials, not for one political party or another. And speaking of election administration, we also have a second bit of bad news coming out of Wisconsin. So in Wisconsin, a judge ruled that the federal voter registration application um, could not be used in the state. A circuit court judge barred the use of this application, and it's a form that's used by nearly every other state in the country. So it's really commonplace as far as implementation. Uh, A conservative law firm filed uh, a lawsuit alleging that the form was never properly approved by the Wisconsin Election uh, Commission, that's WEC, and also omits uh, information that's necessary to register voters under Wisconsin law. So the court agreed that WEC had not properly prescribed or promulgated that form. Um, They didn't really talk about the question of whether the information on the form was sufficient to comply with Wisconsin statute, but more so that it was not implemented correctly. And it's not all doom and gloom, right? Can you tell us about what happened in Michigan and Arkansas this past week? Sure. So in Michigan, uh, we see that they've launched a program to allow domestic violence survivors to keep voter registration uh, records confidential. So uh, this is going to be a huge deal for the um, confidentiality of voters in the state. They launched a program designed to make it easier for survivors of domestic violence to keep their home address confidential, which, as you can imagine, is really critical to those survivors. Uh, This program is intended to shield a survivor's address from their abuser by making it harder to access that information via public record. So this includes voter registration records. Participants in this program are issued a designated legal mailing address they can provide to government agencies, including the Secretary of State, and struggled using their actual home address. And uh, let's go to Arkansas. Sure. So in Arkansas, we see that a judge has thrown out a lawsuit challenging the state's voting machines. Uh, A circuit court judge in Pulaski County, which includes Little Rock, has dismissed a lawsuit alleging that the state's ballot counting machines did not allow for the verification opportunity required by the law. So the court determined that the current barcode-based system does not comply with the law because voters get printed ballots to cast once they've made their own choices on the computer system. Um, And under this new state law, counties may opt to use paper ballots instead of electronic voting machines. But counties that do so are responsible for the cost of the paper ballots and electronic tabulators required to count them. So we see that the quorum court in Searcy County approved a resolution to move paper ballots last month. Um, Earlier this year, an effort to switch to paper ballots was rejected in another county in the state. So they're really struggling with this idea of uh, the proper use of technology in Arkansas. Thank you so much, Megan. And looking ahead, uh, what's next? What are we looking at for the coming week? 
Well, there are a few big pieces that are coming um, in, in the coming week. So we see that there is a big lawsuit in Texas. Um, there was a 2021 law that dominated national headlines when Texas Democrats in the House walked out for over a month. Um, and this law is being challenged in federal court by the ACLU, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund, the DOJ, and others. A trial in this case began uh, September 11th, and it's expected to last for about six weeks, with the decision anticipated by the end of the year. At issue uh, in this lawsuit are several provisions that, taken all together, resulted in significant obstacles for voters. For example, tens of thousands of mail ballots were tossed in the 2022 primary and general election. Um, untold registrations were canceled. Voter assistance for those with disabilities was made much more difficult. And this law erodes the sound, nonpartisan, local administration of elections in Texas. So this case is certainly going to be one to watch, um, not just next week, but for months to come. Uh, the judge who's presiding over this case recently ruled in favor of voters on one aspect of this lawsuit, but you really can't use that to tell how he's going to rule on all of the other provisions. Um, and you mentioned the tracker earlier in our conversation. Uh, our state voting rights tracker ranked this law at issue as anti-voter when it was being considered. And given what we've seen about the problems this law has posed for voters and election administrators after it was implemented, we really do hope the plaintiffs prevail in this case. And that's a great transition because later in the episode, we'll be speaking with Houston Public Media reporter Andrew Snyder, who's been covering this uh, and will continue to cover this case. Thank you so much for that for that preview and that explanation. For folks who want to learn more about what we've discussed and to keep up to date, in addition to listening to the podcast, you can also go to Voting Rights Lab and subscribe to The Markup, where they have a wonderful weekly newsletter summarizing voting rights and restrictions, laws and bills that are, are coming out in real time. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Molly. Next up, we're off to Texas, where we'll speak with Houston Public Media reporter Andrew Schneider about politics and voting rights in the state. My name is Andrew Schneider. I am the politics and government reporter for Houston Public Media. Andrew, there's so much for listeners to know about the legislative landscape and elections in Texas. Before we get into all of it, I'm wondering if you can briefly summarize or just characterize the last couple of years of voting policy in Texas. What are some things that are unique to Texas? What would be important for an outsider to know about how elections and voting work there? Sure. Uh Probably the one thing people should know most about Texas is that it is harder to vote here than in almost any other state in the country. That's according to the cost of voting index prepared by Northern Illinois University scholars. Uh, in 2020, they actually ranked Texas at the bottom of all 50 states in terms of the ease of voting. It's since climbed up to number 46 since then, but that's more because a handful of other states have made it harder to vote than because Texas made it easier. And the net effect of all this has been to discourage voter turnout. Uh, among other things, in recent years, we've seen the number of polling locations in the state reduced by about half. Uh, there's a 30-day deadline uh, for in-person voter registration, which is um, among the longest in the country. Uh, there's a strict 
voter photo ID law that tends to work against poorer and minority voters. And we've had, particularly since the Supreme Court uh, did away with um, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act about 10 years ago, a number of different measures that the state has taken that have focused on tightening the rules for voting, allegedly in the name of combating voter fraud. Uh, in practice, they tend to work against, as I said, poor and minority voters. And a story that made national news out of Texas is House Bill 1243 that raises the penalty for illegal voting to a felony. What is the status of this bill now? Essentially, what it does is reverses a change that was made uh, a couple of years ago in part of a, a, an omnibus uh, voting legislation bill. Um the uh, illegal voting had been a felony in Texas for close to half a century before um, this bill was passed in 2021, uh, at which time it was shifted to a, I believe, a class A misdemeanor. And this changes it back to a second degree felony, which for context sake is is on par with serious uh, sexual assault charges, uh, human trafficking and various other different severe crimes. It could potentially result in a, in a fairly lengthy jail sentence. And of course, also in a loss of voting rights. Exactly. And that leads us to SB1, the major omnibus elections bill that's uh, currently under long-awaited trial. Let's talk about SB1. Right. Well, this was this was the this the center of a, a great deal of drama about two years ago. It led to a walkout of uh, members of the Democratic uh, the Democratic members of the Texas House in order to prevent the uh, the the House from having a quorum in order to be able to act on the legislation. Um, in in the end, it only wound up delaying the inevitable. Um, the, the law passed in, uh, I believe the, the second special session of 2021, uh, a lot of the provisions of the bill were aimed at practices that, uh, Harris County had explored in terms of trying to make the, uh, the process of voting easier and safer during the COVID epidemic. Uh, they included things like uh, having a number of voting centers that allowed 24-hour voting, a uh, number of voting centers that had drive-through voting, both of those were made illegal. Uh, in addition to that, the law limited the distribution of mail-in boat, uh, ballot applications. It expanded potential criminal penalties for poll workers and voter assistants, including felonies. Uh, it expanded the authority of partisan poll watchers, which has led to a lot of uh, concerns by by Democrats about uh, harassment by Republican poll watchers. Uh, all of this is now subject to a series of federal lawsuits, which are currently being heard in the U.S. District Court in San Antonio. And one of those trials is currently underway in San Antonio. Can you tell us about the substance of some of these lawsuits? Uh, well, uh, uh, they're basically uh, arguing that the the various different provisions of Senate Bill 1 violate the Voting Rights Act and violate, uh, I believe, the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, and uh, again, I mean, 
we will we'll, we'll have to see where things go from there. Um, it's not the it's far from the only voting rights lawsuit that's going ahead in Texas, but it's probably the most significant statewide. The fact is there have been a lot of different elections bills that have passed the legislature targeting local governments and targeting one local government in particular. Uh, and that that would be Harris County, which is the home of Houston, um, and which in uh, in recent years has been trending pretty solidly uh, democratically, uh, while the state itself has been uh, trending solidly Republican for, for decades. There's been a concern among a lot of Republicans, in some cases stated openly, that uh, as goes Houston, so goes the rest of the state. So um, there, there is, you know, there is a, a strong motivation to try and limit developments in Houston that could potentially lead to uh, greater Democratic gains elsewhere. And I believe you're referring to Senate Bill 1750. Is that correct? Passed uh, in May and then enacted September 1st. SB 1750 is is the the latest and and probably the most direct uh, example of this. Um, we I mean we've seen some examples of this in terms of that omnibus bill that I mentioned uh, earlier. As uh, was it passed a uh, a special legislative session two years ago as Senate Bill 1. Uh, and a lot of the changes that were made in that bill were largely responding to um, efforts by Harris County to make it easier to vote during the height of the pandemic. Uh, they had allowed for 24-hour votings at several locations. They had allowed for drive-through votings at several locations. And all of those were made illegal under SB 1. What we saw with SB 1750 in the most recent uh, regular legislative session was to specifically target the appointed election administrator position in Harris County. Um, Harris County was one of the latest counties in the state to adopt the uh, the position of an elected uh, of an appointed election administrator. Um, shifting the duties of both overseeing elections and managing voter rolls from two different elected officials to uh, an official that was appointed by the county. And this is something that we've seen um, in uh, dozens of counties across the state of Texas, both Democrat and Republican. But because the, the, uh, the Democrats run the county government here, it quickly became a focus of opposition by Republicans at the county level and at the state level. And what uh, what triggered the creation of this law was we had a series of problems in the 2022 primary and general elections, which Republicans blamed largely on the elections administrators at the time. Uh, during the primary, that was a woman named Isabel Longoria, uh, she wound up resigning as a result of of those problems, um, late reporting of results, and uh, several thousands of of ballots that turned up late in the process. And then we had during the general election, uh, we had uh, a number of problems that appeared to uh, occur in in Republican leading districts. 
uh, specifically with regards to shortages of ballot paper. Uh, this, the state, uh, the, the, the county recently shifted over to a, a hybrid system that requires paper ballots uh, in order to uh, in order to cast your vote. And uh, the Republicans took the position that this was at best incompetence and at worst a, a deliberate attempt to suppress the Republican vote in the county. Uh, Houston Public Media actually did an investigation of this over the course of about five months, found no evidence that that any of this was was deliberate. Uh, nevertheless, um, it it garnered more than enough support in, in order to pass this law, which took effect, as you said, September 1st. Um, there was a lawsuit to try and, and, and block this. It went to the Supreme Court and uh, the law itself is is going to be subject to further challenges. But in, in effect, it's uh, even if the Supreme Court does wind up holding upholding the county's argument that the law itself is unconstitutional, it's unlikely that we're going to see them go back to having an elections administrator. Instead, the county is is going forward with uh, running its elections as it did before 2020 with the county, the elected county clerk overseeing elections and the elected county tax assessor overseeing the voter rolls. And there's there's one more wrinkle to this, mm-hmm. which is that there was another law that was passed largely aimed at, well, exclusively aimed at Harris County, but because of its 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 framing in terms of the the number of of county residents that a county had to have okay. in order for this law to apply to them, and that was uh, a law called SB 1933, uh, and a lot of the defenders of uh, SB 1750 have basically said, look, the county tax assessor collector is a Democrat. The county clerk is a Democrat. Uh, even though we're Republicans, we see this as uh, as necessary for good government. We're going to support the idea that, that, we, that we shift over responsibility to these two. What SB 1933 does, however, is allows the secretary of state to impose administrative oversight over both of those offices uh, and in the running of elections if any one of a number of different county uh, Republican officials uh, calls and complains that they that they see further problems. So if there if the elections this fall or next year are anything less than perfect, we could wind up seeing uh, a greater degree of state intervention in Harris County than we've ever seen before. Yeah, I was going to ask: Is there precedent for this? Have we seen anything like this before? Uh, not as far as I know. And I'd love to hear more about the Houston Public Media investigation you mentioned. Um, yeah, t- tell us about how that five months process worked out um, and and what your findings were. Sure, uh, I. A lot of what I did was to place uh, public records requests, which which wound up getting turned aside by the Harris County Elections Administrators because they were subject to various different lawsuits. Most most of the the requests that I put in wound up just getting bounced up to the Attorney General, who eventually got back to me saying, "Well, uh, under Texas Public Information Law." Um, they are not required to release this information because they're they're subject to lawsuits. And I should have mentioned that before. While all of this has been going on, the Harris County Republican Party has been suing 
what was then the elections administrator's office and, and other officials in Harris County because they feel that they were deprived of, of, uh, of, of a, a fair vote. As far as, as the results of the investigation, I spoke with quite a few Harris County elections judges from both parties trying to get their sense as to the degree to which things had changed over the past several election cycles, tried to get a sense as to how things actually transpired uh, during the last general election, what changes they saw when the elections administrator was was uh, uh, took office as opposed to prior to when the elections administrator took office. And in essence, what I found was there were there were definitely reasons to be concerned about the elections administrator, the way the elections administrator was was doing his or her job. Uh, there were quite a few layoffs that took place um, first after a, a Democrat was elected Harris County clerk, and then after the elections administrators were put into place. And these layoffs may have uh, affected the uh, efficiency of the, the the way that Harris County elections officials trained for their elections. That said, uh, I didn't see any evidence of any malicious intent. Uh, I didn't see any evidence that there was a, a deliberate move to try and, and uh, stifle the number of, of uh, paper ballots going to any particular location. Uh, I found significant differences between what various different Republican election judges claimed um, in terms of how long they had been without paper ballots and uh, what the the uh, the record uh, from the the, the uh, election central count actually showed when particular sites had been out of operation uh, and the end result was that it, it suggested that Harris County elections were messy, um, but that this was not necessarily something that um, was uh, was was something that was unusual or specific to having an elections administrator, because we had had we had had uh, problems with elections even before the elections administrator was appointed. Before we move off of Harris County, I know we got into most of this already. Why Harris County and what is the purpose and impact of these bills? Why Harris County? I think it's one of the one of the misconceptions of Texas is that it's a purely red state. Uh, if you look at most of the large cities in Texas, you will see a lot of blue dots in a red sea. And the big concern about Harris County, you know, being the largest county in the state and having gone Democratic um, and uh, for most for pretty much all of the the countywide offices in recent years, there is a concern that um, among Republicans that it could wind up serving as a laboratory for how Democrats could take over the rest of the state. Uh, and so to the extent that they can prevent this from happening um, by changing the rules and making it more difficult to 
uh, to elect Democrats or raising questions about the legitimacy of elections, uh, they seem to have no compunction about doing so. You've been covering the impeachment trial of the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton for this last week. For folks who haven't been following, what makes this a national story? What makes it a national story is that Ken Paxton has has inserted himself into national politics in a big way for the last nearly 10 years that he's been in office. He has brought uh, a large number of cases, quite a few of them successful against Democratic administrations, first the Obama administration, now the Biden administration, on major policy issues, everything ranging from abortion to immigration. He also was one of the lead figures in an effort by then President Trump to try and overturn the 2020 election results. He presents himself as a very staunch ally of former President Trump. Uh, and uh, President Trump, former President Trump has returned the favor. Uh, in uh, one of the one of the statements that came out almost immediately after uh Attorney General Paxton was acquitted was from former President Trump calling it, quote, a Texas-sized victory. And to back up a little bit, what exactly is Ken Paxton on trial for? There were initially 20 different charges against uh, Ken Paxton. Four of them were set aside, uh, possibly to be taken up later. The ones for which he was on trial for the past two weeks largely related to questions of uh, dereliction of duty, abuse of office, uh, constitutional bribery, uh, all related to the questions of whether he had intervened in, uh, in legal processes on behalf of a man by the name of Nate Paul, who's a real estate investor in Houston. A, a real, he's a real estate investor in Austin. Uh, he's also a strong friend and political donor on behalf of Ken Paxton. Um, there were some additional charges that related to various different uh, state securities fraud charges that Paxton is facing. Uh, those were taken out of the initial um, prosecution. And one of the last votes that the Senate took after it acquitted him on the counts of the additional, the the original sixteen uh, charges, was to dismiss the remaining four charges. And what next? <laughs> what next? Well, uh, under Texas law, when someone is impeached and they're waiting to be tried, they are suspended from work without pay. Now, Attorney General Paxton goes back to the job for which he's been elected three times. Um, he is not out of the woods yet. He is still facing those securities fraud charges. Um, he has been under indictment for these securities fraud charges almost as long as he's been in office. Those charges were brought about eight years ago. Um, they're related. They relate to um, his activities on behalf of a, an IT startup called Servergy uh, from a time before he was elected attorney general. Um, the next hearing in that case is set to take place October 6th, at which time the judge is expected to finally declare a trial date. Um, one of the reasons that the trial has been delayed this long is because um, there has been a question of venue. 
uh, the prosecutors had been looking to move the trial out of Collin County, which is where uh, Paxton previously served as a senator and his wife now serves as a senator. Uh, it's it's a political power base for him. He's uh, he had uh, the prosecutors had been trying to have the trial moved to Harris County. Uh, his defense attorneys had, for the same reason, been trying to move the case back to Collin County. It's now definitely going to take place in Harris County. So there is a very real possibility that he could still wind up being convicted and removed from office. I have two more questions. One is about Senate. Bill 1070, which opens the door for Texas to withdraw from ERIC, or I believe it's the, what is it, the Electronic Registration Information, information System. system. It's yeah, exactly. Information Center. Information Center. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes. Um, well, that, by the time that law took effect uh, on September 1st, uh, the state had already moved to withdraw Texas from ERIC. This, the Secretary of State's office actually sent notice to ERIC back in uh, the middle of July, I believe, giving the mandatory 91-day notice that it was going to withdraw from this interstate voter uh, registration compact. Um, that means that the state ef- effectively withdraws um, in uh, about a month's time, I, I don't remember the exact date. I think it was October 19th, but that's right before early voting starts in Texas. So it means that this fall and certainly going ahead towards the um, the primary and general elections during the next presidential election cycle, the state will have no means of cross-checking its voter databases against those of other states. And this was was kind of uh, ironic um, uh, in the way that this played out, I think, uh, because one of the strongest arguments that uh, Republicans have been making for years uh, in terms of the need for various different uh, tougher voting laws is they want to try and and cut down on the risk of of fraud. Uh, and to the extent that voting fraud is a problem, Eric has been a fairly effective tool at combating it. Uh, this is something that we've heard from uh, a number of highly conservative states like Florida, that they have, as a result of Eric, been able to identify people that had tried to vote twice or tried to vote uh, in one state when they're registered to vote in another. But there has been a a variety of different concerns that Republicans have raised about the questions of whether um, Eric is doing its job effectively, the question of whether Eric is nonpartisan. Um, There have been a number of different conspiracy theories that have made the rounds about the funding for Eric. you know, most of which have been uh, entirely debunked repeatedly in the public sphere, but the law went ahead anyway, uh, and um, it's now going to take effect in practice in uh, about a month's time. Mm-hmm. What can voters expect this coming November as the county and the rest of the state gear up for some elections? How is that all going to play out given everything that's going on? Well, it's 
It's funny you should mention that. I mean, as we're as we're speaking, the Harris County election officials, uh, the, the the county clerk and the county tax assessor collector, um, uh, are get you know they have made the transition formally from the elections administrator's office. They are in the process of gearing up for the fall elections. There's a pretty significant election taking place here in Harris County, and that's. Uh, for uh, the Houston mayor's race, um, our our current mayor is term limited. He's not running again, so we we're we're going to have the the first open mayoral election in eight years. And um, there's, as I said, very real reason for concern that if anything goes wrong uh, this fall. Um, as is entirely possible when you're switching over uh, from from one form of election administration to another, um, that the state could decide to take it upon itself to uh, impose administrative oversight. So that's something that a lot of local officials, particularly local Democratic officials, are very concerned about. Right. And speaking of omnibus bills, so let's take a look at the Texas Regulatory Consistency Act. Why are some people calling it a Death Star law? How does Star Wars come into it? Right. Well, I'm not sure how the how the bill got its its moniker. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it was it was it was uh, as I'm I the first time I heard it was uh referred to that was by a, a local uh, union official. But essentially what it does is it, it makes it difficult, if not impossible, for local governments to enact uh, policy in a wide range of different areas from the environment to occupational codes to agriculture without first getting prior approval from the state legislature. And in practice, that means that they can't do it because uh, at all, because the state legislature meets once every two years for the better part of four months, may have some additional uh, special sessions to deal with particular areas of interest to the governor. But generally, uh, if the legislature doesn't see a reason to uh, to to act in a particular area of policy. They're not going to, and that leaves cities and and counties out of luck uh, in terms of being able to regulate areas that they think are of high priority for their own constituents. And uh, this is this is a particular concern to cities because in Texas there is something called the Home Rule provision for. Uh, a lot of our larger and mid-sized cities, which gives local governments or specifically city governments in places like Houston and San Antonio and Austin and Dallas, the right to be able to regulate in a wide range of, of areas without having to get permission from the legislature. And so the the accusation that a, a lot of the, the critics of, of the Texas Regulatory Consistency Act have made is that this undermines a provision of the Texas Constitution. And that's why this law is now subject to a lawsuit, which is already uh, making its way to the appeals process. And what changes can Texans expect to see now that the law is in effect? And you mentioned the appeals process. What are what are next steps with this? 
Well, the the next step is is that this is going to the the uh, uh, the state appeals court. Um, initially, there was a a ruling from a district court that uh, struck down the law uh, pending the pending the appeals process. Did not grant an injunction, but actually flat out ruled that the law was unconstitutional for the reasons that I outlined. But uh, the attorney general appealed it, and while the appeals process is going on, the law is in effect. Um, probably the the area of biggest concern to people around the state, particularly as we're still seeing temperatures going up well into the 90s, and that's something that we could probably expect to see for at least another month, is that it strikes down laws by various different municipalities like Dallas and Austin, um, that require mandatory uh, water breaks for people that are working outside. Um, this was actually, I think this was this is one of the main reasons why this law wound up getting national attention was because this this was this was being raised at a time when the the state was regularly seeing temperatures in the triple digits as it did for most of the summer. Um, on other issues, um, there are various different workplace safety rules. There are various different rules regarding uh, tenant protections from from uh, in in terms of uh, uh, slum regulations. There's a question of whether the 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 uh, localities would be able to do something as simple as removing populations of bees or other insects uh, from areas where they're creating a nuisance. Wow! So it's really detailed. It is. It is. If, I mean, the, the the one of the one of the critics one of the criticisms that have been leveled at the legislature is that they're essentially deciding by this law that they're acting as a city council, mm-hmm. um, and the problem with that is that a city council in Texas typically meets on the order of once a week, and the legislature meets, as I said, for about 140 days every two years. You spoke a little bit about the criticisms. What was the original reason for this bill? Well, the supporters have argued that it's necessary because having a what they describe as a patchwork of regulations by different cities and counties across the state complicates the ability of businesses to operate in the state. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the things that uh, Texans, uh, particularly uh, conservative Texans, take a considerable degree of pride in is that Texas is one of the most business-friendly states in the country. And so the idea here was that uh, if you're if you're you're concerned that um, you want to be able to operate in multiple different cities, you don't want to have to worry about uh, tinkering with the way that you operate in Dallas and Fort Worth on the one hand and Houston on the other and El Paso and you know at you know for for some other reasons that largely was the 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 public reasoning behind it in any case yeah thank you so so much for your time sure I'd love it if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself and and your career so far uh well as I mentioned to you before, one of the reasons I was so excited about doing this is I grew up on Long Island. Uh, and so uh, Channel 13 was my first, if not my first exposure to PBS, it was one of my earliest exposures to PBS. I moved around a fair bit 
after graduating high school, I went to college in Chicago. I went to graduate school in North Carolina. Uh, I worked for about a dozen years in the D.C. area as a print reporter. And then I came to Houston in the end, at the end of 2010, and I've been working in public radio here ever since. Nice. And why public media, Andrew? Why public media? Uh, well, how can I best put this? <laughs> when I was in graduate school and I was planning on, uh, when I was working towards a degree in history, I was, uh, I, I had the good fortune to listen to NPR's coverage of what was then one of the major stories in the world, the Balkan civil wars. And I was really, really impressed by their coverage. And uh, I thought at the time, well, if my history degree doesn't work out, then maybe this is a, an alternative career for me. And uh, as, it, as it transpired, I wound up leaving graduate school before I got my PhD. And this is just what I'd been aspiring to ever since. Andrew Schneider of Houston Public Media, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. And thank you to our listeners for supporting our new show. Subscribe if you like what you heard, and don't forget to share with your family and friends.